Pick up in the book of Judges tonight in chapter 6. Where we are in Judges, we've gotten pretty used to the cycle. It's the cycle that's laid out in Judges chapter 2 that explains um, that after every one of the judges, Israel forsakes the Lord again. God gives them in judgment over to their enemies. Israel begins to cry out for deliverance, not necessarily crying out in repentance, but just in pain. God has compassion and he raises up another judge. And so we've seen this, we've been around this uh, multiple times now, but we need to keep in mind that once again, it's not a bare naked cycle. It's not merely monotony, always finding itself at the beginning place, but there really is um, a downward spiral in this progression. And tonight is the first place where we really start to see it in the deliverer himself. Tonight is the first place where we really start to see the quality of these judges uh, move down. So just, just as a touch point again, let's look very quickly at the template judge. All the, ba- all the way back with Othniel. And so in chapter 3, verse 7, it says, The people of Israel did what was evil inside of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and then he sold them into the hand of Cushan-Rithim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan-Rithim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, son of Canaz, Caleb's younger brother. The spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan-Rithium, the king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushan-Rithium, so the land had rest for 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Canaz, died. And so Othniel is a man of faith. We already know from earlier in the book um, that he trusts in God's deliverance, and so he's a prime candidate for God to raise up. Um, But now, as we get to Gideon, we're going to see um, a different story. And it's worth keeping in mind, again, how poor utilizing the Bible as a book of virtues is. Oftentimes, the way we read the Bible, we take the characters in the Bible and we make them our heroes, we make them our examples, and we say, if we're to be godly, we should be like these people. But that approach is terribly flawed because all human beings are terribly flawed. And Hebrew storytelling very rarely takes the time to go, by the way, this is a bad idea. Very rarely takes the time to actually label a criticism or a critique. It expects us to be able to read the text and see it for ourselves. And Judges is a book that tells history without comment. Okay. And so um, we need to kind of open our eyes and see effectively the people who God is willing to use as a demonstration of his grace. And here's the thing that I found myself thinking about as I've been pondering the book of Judges. Effectively, God raises up from the midst of Israel a deliverer, one after another. But all of those deliverers, starting here tonight with Gideon, uh, especially with Samson, um, they reflect the same flaws, the same weaknesses 
of their culture. Okay? It's not like there was someone more righteous hiding in the wings and God went with this guy. This is, uh, this is where Israel at is, is at in the days of the judges. They have been fully uh, canonized, if you'll allow me the term. They've fully embraced and incorporated themselves with this mixed multitude of people who they were supposed to drive out. They've adopted their religion, not refusing or removing themselves from the religion of their birth, but integrating it with the religious ideas around them. Just think about all of the different points in Israel's history and in the New Testament and how different it would have been to be one of God's people then. Think what it'd be like to be scattered across Babylon, wondering if God could still keep his promises, wondering if there was any hope for Israel as you lived under the thumb of a foreign power. Think of what it's like to be in the wilderness, wandering with a promised land and daily miracles. You see, when we look at our own experience of church, we tend to think of it as the status quo. Our own experience as Christians at this time, in this place, this is normal. Normality for the days of the judges was tremendously different and not in a good way. And so, the cycle begins again in verse 1 of chapter 6. The people of Israel did what was evil in sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. Okay. Now here's what you need to know about the Midianites. As opposed to all the enemies we've seen so far, this is a Bedouin tribe. This is a traveling tribe. In fact, we'll see a few other enemies on the list. They are all migratory. Okay. The other people who have oppressed Israel so far in the book have been nearby nature, uh, nations, but uh, the Midianites we know from all the way back, all the way back from the days of Joseph. It's the Midianites who he's sold into as a slave and they carry him to Egypt because they're always moving around. And so trading is a major part of what they do. And so here the Midianites show up and we can see that things have gotten pretty bad because Israel is starting to flee to caves for protection, right? They're just getting out of town. In fact, verse 3, whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. And so they're raiding Israel, showing up whenever there's anything to take, a new crop, a new batch of cows, anything. They just come in, they take everything, and they leave. Uh, the, the picture here, uh, look at what he uses in verse 5, for they would come up with their livestock and their tents and would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be con- counted so that they laid waste to the land as they came in. And so it's effectively a plague of raiders, like locusts, just coming in and devouring everything and leaving nothing. In fact, the story here in the days of Gideon uh, is really similar to the stories we still tell today, beginning with Seven Samurai or the Western version, Magnificent Seven, uh, or the Pixar version, A Bug's Life, right? About an oppressed town and the ones who just come in and take all the goods and leave. It's a time that needs a hero, right? Those are the days of Gideon. Okay, and so, final statement here, verse 6, And Israel was brought very low because of Midian, 
And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. So the cycle repeats itself. They're uh, so far from God that this is what it takes to get their attention. In the problem of pain, C.S. Lewis argues that pain is both one of God's scariest and his most effective tools to speak. He says that he whispers to us in our pleasure, but he shouts to us in our pain. He's trying to wake them up to how bad things really are. And so the Midianites put them in a place of need, of deep need. And again, they begin to cry out. But even here, we see that the oppression is worse than it's ever been. And so, verse 7, when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of bondage, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Now, this is an important passage in the book of Judges because notice this is just an unnamed prophet. Whoever this prophet is, he didn't write a book of the Bible. He didn't have a long-standing ministry. We're just told about this one thing. And this is exactly what Moses promised God would do. That after the days of Moses, God would raise up a prophet like him to call them back to God. And it's a helpful reminder for us um, how much more God did than we have record of. Right? The Bible's story is not to tell us everything God has ever done, but to tell the great story of the single most important thing God has ever done in raising up a people for himself and sending the Messiah to save the world. That's where the Bible focuses. But every once in a while, a character traipses onto the scene that we know nothing about and just makes an appearance. Consider Melchizedek all the way back uh, in the book of Genesis. He's a priest, apparently a priest of the Most High God, not an Israelite, coexisting in the days of Abraham, faithful to the Lord, and we wouldn't know anything about him if it weren't for this meeting of minds, as it were, between him and Abraham, and then they just part ways and nothing's ever said again. Here we have a nameless prophet, but the point is that even in the days of the judges, God has not left himself without a witness. And so the prophet is speaking to the people, and the message is the same. It's effectively repent. But I want you to notice that God doesn't wait for their repentance to do something about it. That might be surprising to us. In fact, later in Israel's history, that becomes a major component, is if you turn around, then I will save you. Think of the book of Joel. Joel is a helpful comparison with this story today because in the days of Joel, they have an actual locust problem. And it's a bad one. Joel says, what the flying locusts have left behind, the crawling locusts have eaten. And what the crawling locusts have left behind, another category of locusts have eaten. Everything is totally devastated. There's nothing left in Israel. And Joel says, we haven't seen anything yet. He goes back to the book of Deuteronomy, just like this prophet does. And he says, these are the things that God said would come upon us. And it's pretty high on the list. There's a lot more that follows if we do not repent. And he says, yet, even still, if today you repent, 
Not only can this all stop, but God is capable of restoring even the years the locusts have eaten. But that's the line. Repent first. But in the days of Judges, there's a constant call to repent, but what we see in God's constant deliverance is above and beyond a response to repentance. It's just outright mercy. It's just God reaching out to them over and over again, holding out his hand. And it's an unfortunate way to view the history of the days of, judge, of the Judges, but essentially God just leaves them where, they're, where they are and doesn't let them fall completely off the map. He has a plan. It's not yet. But he doesn't pull them all the way up out of this. He just makes sure they don't eradicate themselves effectively. Make sure that all is not lost. And so, not only does he call a prophet, and the prophet convicts and confronts Israel, but he also calls another judge, another deliverer, and this one's name is Gideon, verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Oparah, which belonged to Joash, the Abizarite, while his son Gideon was beating out the wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And so here we discover another character that we've encountered in the book of Judges, the angel of the Lord. And actually, that title, the angel of the Lord, pre-exists the book of Judges. We've seen him show up and talk to Hagar in the book of Genesis. We've seen reference to the angel of the Lord who would go before Israel and fight their battles. We've seen the commander of the Lord's armies in Joshua chapter 5, who may very well be this same angel of the Lord. He's been referred to, but in the Judges, he shows up quite a lot. And here, he shows up to call Gideon. Now, the question becomes, exactly who is this angel? And many suggest what we're dealing with here is a theophany, an appearance of God. Or even more significantly, a Christophany, an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ. We'll look at that in just a second, but here's effectively, um, effectively some groundwork. When we talk about the relationship between Jesus and the Old Testament, we open a very big topic, okay? One that's extensive. Remember, Jesus himself in the Sermon on the Mount says, don't think that I came to abolish the law. Don't think that I came to throw out the Old Testament. Instead, I came to fulfill it. Remember, Jesus said to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures, speaking of the Old Testament, for in them you think that you have life, but it is they that testify of me. And so there's a lot of facets and pieces to this. One of the ways that the Bible in the Old Testament points to Jesus is in uh, in the big story it tells, right? It's moving towards Jesus, constantly gravitating towards. Everything God does in the Old Testament is oriented towards his plan to bring about Jesus, okay? But when we talk about actual texts, what texts point to Jesus, we primarily put them in three categories. There are the prophecies. These are specifically stated predictions of who Jesus would be, when he would come, and what he would do. Okay? And there are extensive prophecies in the Old Testament that point to the coming of Jesus. We think, for example, of Isaiah 53. We think of the words uh, in the minor prophets that talk about the one who's going to come out of Bethlehem. We think of the promises made all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 to Adam and Eve that the seed of the woman would come and set things right. These are the prophecies that point to Christ, 
okay? Another thing that we talk about in the Old Testament in, in terms of texts that point to Jesus are the types, okay? The New Testament explains that there's many things that happened in Israel's history that are types or shadows or schema is the Greek word that's used, patterns that point forward to who Jesus was. And they give us quite a few illustrations of those. And so the sacrificial system was a type of Jesus to come. He was the antitype, okay? Effectively, what a type is, is a historical prophecy. It's an actual thing that happens in history, but its purpose is to point forward to something that's still to come, okay? That's why John looks at Jesus uh, after the baptism and says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He connects all of these lambs that have died in history and says, here's the one true lamb. Okay. The high priest is a type. The tabernacle is a type. Okay. Uh, the bronze serpent in the wilderness is a type. The rock that Moses strikes is a type. These are the pictures prophetically laid out to show us what Jesus' ministry in person would be like. And then finally, we have the appearances of the pre-incarnate Christ. Now, first off, the reason we call these Christophanies and not merely Theophanies is because the Bible seems to maintain consistently that God the Father, God Almighty, is not seen and that no one can see him and live. Remember the words of Moses as he's on the mountain and he says God show me your glory and he says I can't you would die but I'll hide you in the cleft of a rock I'll cover it with my hand and I'll pass by you and you will see my afterglow that's as close as Moses can come then when we look to the New Testament, the way it talks about Jesus, it says that Jesus in the beginning, John's Gospel chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then later in verse 18, it says that he who is from the very bosom of the Father, no one has seen God and lives, but he who is from the very bosom of the Father, he has made him known. Okay? No one has seen God the Father, but we have seen Jesus. And that's why later in John's Gospel, Jesus when asked by Philip, Philip says, show us the Father, Jesus. He says, Philip, have I been with you so long? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That's why Paul says that he is the image of the invisible God in Colossians. And so the premise here, the premise is that Jesus has always been the visible person of the Trinity, the one who makes himself known in human history. The reason that this is different than Jesus in the Gospels is because Jesus has not yet become a man. Jesus has not yet been born a human. And so we're talking about something different here. Now, why do we suggest that the angel of the Lord in these appearances is a Christophany? It's because he does things that angels don't usually do. As we'll see in this passage, a couple of them I want you to notice is that he doesn't speak for God, he speaks as God. A second thing I want you to notice is that he doesn't seem to have any problem receiving worship. And that's a significant one. Because, for example, in the book of Revelation, there's an occasion where John is just so overwhelmed by what he's seeing, his angelic tour guide standing next to him, he just falls down at his feet 
and begins to just be overwhelmed. And he says, no, 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 do not worship me. I am just a servant like you. The angel of the Lord doesn't do that. He doesn't seem bothered by worship. And then a third thing that we see is this impression that people have when they encounter the angel of the Lord that they haven't just met something angelic, but something divine. And so we'll notice the words of Gideon tonight when he finally realizes things. He goes, how am I still standing? I shouldn't be alive. How can it be that I have seen God and still live, right? And so these things make us point to something more significant here. So let's look at the story together. So the angel of the Lord, he came and sat under the terebinth at Opara, which belonged to Joash the Abizarite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. Okay, so Gideon's got a new strategy. Instead of doing this out in the open, he goes to the winepress out of season and beats his wheat there. It's hidden. It's, it's got walls. It's, you know, made for containing grapes and juice. He's undercover, if you will. And so, verse 12, the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Now, at first glance, at least the first half of this just seems like a greeting. Can't you imagine? Can't you imagine that the way that Israel greeted one another is just the Lord be with you, right? Um, but when he adds here, O mighty man of valor, he clearly gets Gideon's attention. This is not just your average or usual address. I imagine many of us relate to not having terms like this thrown around by people we've never met. And notice verse 13, And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, then why has all of this happened to us? And where are his wonderful deeds that the Father recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of the Midians. Now notice there, Gideon seems to be familiar with the words of the prophet, doesn't he? Gideon wasn't alive during the days of Moses. How does he know about the wonderful deeds? We just read about this in the first few verses. God sent a prophet. Gideon's familiar with the message. And he says, yes, that God did do the marvelous and the miraculous. He did mighty deeds to bring us out of Egypt. But have you looked around lately? Where is God now? And so he even questions whether it's a basic greeting or a proclamation that this angel makes. The Lord is with you, he says. It doesn't seem like it. It doesn't feel like it. Gideon's a skeptic. On top of that, notice verse, uh, verse 14. The Lord turned to him and said. Who? Who here turned to him and said? The Lord. And if you look closely at the text there in verse 14, you will see that L-O-R-D there is all in capital. And Yahweh turned to him and said, not just Sir, not just Adonai, the big title of God. That's what's used here. The Lord turned to him and said, the narrator points to this angel being someone more significant. He says, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? Now we start to get some context for the second thing the angel says. Mighty man of valor. Now he adds to that and he says, why don't you get to work already? I've already given you the strength. Go in your strength and deliver Israel. Have I not called you to do it? Now we're going to see that however you read mighty man of valor, it's a misnomer. In fact, it's probably a misnomer twice over. Okay. One, because 
he's hiding in a wine press. He doesn't seem like a mighty man. He's not really interested in picking a fight with the Midianites. He's just trying to survive, okay? But even if the angel of the Lord knows Gideon better than himself, which preaches, doesn't it? Even if that's the case, by the time we're done with Gideon, he may be a mighty man. He's no longer going to be a man of valor. It's a strange label for Gideon. It's a weird thing to say. And it's not just us who get bothered reading it. It's also Gideon. And so notice here, he says, I've commissioned you. I'm sending you. When it says there, do not I send you, what is he saying? It's, it's confidence in the call. Remember what God says to Moses? He says, I've heard the cry of my people. I'm sending you to them. And Moses comes up with all sorts of reasons and excuses. But when you look at the... Uh, provisions or the persuasion that God brings in the burning bush to Moses, it's effectively, I'm going to be with you. I've called you, right? And so Moses says, I can't speak. And God just says, who made your tongue? Here, before Gideon even gets a chance to speak, he says, I made you for this, Gideon. I have this plan for you. I have this purpose for you. And then look at how he responds in verse 15. He said, please, Lord, How can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And so he just says, it's not very likely. Of all the people who could possibly help us right now, I'm the least qualified. Of all the Manassehites, my family is the least important. And of my family, I am, you know, the runt of the litter. Now, this may be true, But there is something to notice, which is when we get to talking about his dad, Joash, he seems to be a man of influence. But either way, he basically says, you've got the wrong guy. And so, the angel speaks again, verse 16, the Lord said to him, but I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, if now I found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Okay. Now, just think of that phrase in and of itself and how strange it is. Here he's talking to a stranger who's sitting under a tree, who, as we'll find out in a second, has a walking stick. And he says, I'm not sure it's really you. Show me a sign. Okay. Now, maybe at this point, Gideon just sees this person as being a mouthpiece for the Lord, in other words, a prophet. And what he's really asking for is some prophetic credentials, right? Moses had a staff so that all the elders of Israel would know he was the one who God had chosen. And he says here, how do I know this isn't some sort of con job or you didn't just break out of the local mental institution? Prove to me you're sent by God. Okay. And so this is what he says in verse 18. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay and return. Now, we can't see at first how those two things are connected, but he's going to set up a pretty royal feast for this guy. This is probably just hospitality. It's not so much that he wants the feast to somehow be miraculous as it is he wants to provide 
for this mysterious man of God, provide for this messenger, um, and give room for whatever happens next. But it is significant that what he sets up is a big deal. He doesn't swing through a drive-thru and pick up a couple of cheeseburgers. I mean, listen to what he does. Verse 19, Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. Okay, an ephah, when it's a liquid measurement, that's 17 liters. Okay, so think of all your two-liter Coke bottles sitting there in a row. He makes that much, uh, takes that much flour and makes pancakes, if you will, out of all of them. It's, it's significant. And then he, he kills an entire goat and roasts it whole and brings that with him. It's a big f- feast. He's pulling out all the stops. Okay. Verse 20, the angel of the God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Okay. So he gets there and he says, set it up right here on this rock. And then he says, pour out the broth over the top of all of it. And then, verse 21, the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of his staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes and then the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Okay. There's the sign. There it is. He watched as, as this food is consumed in fire. Notice the touch point with Moses' ministry. It's a staff you know, with, with, that this is done with. And then he just disappears. Now notice how Gideon responds in verse 22. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord, and Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. He's shocked by this. He's overwhelmed by this. But, verse 23, the Lord said to him, Peace be to you, do not fear, you shall not die. So what's the concern there? It's the same one that we talked about that God tells Moses. It's the same one that's so striking um, when the angel of the Lord shows up in other places. I've seen the Lord and yet I live. And God says it's fine. It's going to be okay. Verse 24, then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it the Lord is peace. Okay. Why did he call it the Lord is peace? Because that's the message that God gave him. Everything is fine. Peace be to you. I'm not here to destroy you. I'm not here to end you. To this day, it still stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Abizarites. Okay, and so, once again, in the days the book of Judges is written, he says, you can go see for yourself where this happened. You can visit the site. It's well marked. The altar that he built is still there. The memorial still stands. That night, the Lord said to him, take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, And pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that's beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold here with the stones laid in due order. Okay, and so what does he say? First, he says, I want you to destroy your household gods. Okay. He says, I want you to go in. I want you to pull down the statue of Baal. I want you to break apart the astra, which were these wooden images. He's like, and then I want you to, to burn it all. And then he says, take the second bowl and offer a burnt offering with the wood of the astra that you will cut down. And so he actually turns this idol of Baal and the astra into an altar to Yahweh. But remember here, 
This is his dad's gods. Okay. Now, a couple of things we should notice here. One, it shows us, it shows us the caliber of Gideon. Okay. He is a Baal worshiper. We have no reason to believe otherwise. Okay. But the second thing we see here is not only his caliber, but where God begins. It's first this, then that. What did he say? I'm going to deliver the Midianites into your hand. Gideon, I'm going to use you to destroy the armies of your enemies. And then he says, but first, this needs to happen. But first, at home, this issue has to be dealt with. Okay. And so, verse 27, Gideon took the men of his servants and did as the Lord has told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. So instead of just coming in during day, getting everybody's attention and saying, the Lord has sent me to get rid of this, this is wrong, calling them to repentance, he does it covertly. He sneaks in under the cover of darkness so nobody knows that it was him. And they come out in the morning and here their idol is broken down and there's a calf, you know, smoking, burning on the altar. And nobody knows who did it. We're going to see here that one of the major features of young Gideon is cowardice. We've already seen him working in the wine press, okay? Hiding where he's working the grain there. Now, if that doesn't seem like cowardice to you, it just seems like wisdom. Realize that it's also very, very difficult, okay? There's a reason why there's a threshing floor, which is where you take grain, and a wine press, and they're not the same thing. Okay. A wine press is a big stone, um, stone round area with a little uh, carved out tube coming down. Not a tube, but a, an inlay coming down. And so you press the grapes and then it runs down. But it's, it's walled in. You're, you're down under the level of the earth. Okay? A threshing floor is usually up and above on a hill with a stiff wind. Because at a threshing floor, what you do is you take the grain, and always grain has this little paper-like chaff on it. And so you thresh the grain, uh, and you just break all the chaff away, and then you toss it into the air, and all the chaff is so light, it's lighter than air, it blows away in the wind. That would not work in a wine press. Okay. But he's so afraid of the Midianites that he's making his job much harder. What his biggest concern is not getting the job done, it's not being seen. And then here, here, he has clear evidence of God's calling on his life, miraculously performed before him, but he doesn't find any courage in that. He doesn't find any strength in that. He's going to obey under the cover of darkness. So let's notice what happens next to him. Verse 28, when the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down and the Asherah beside it was cut down and the second bowl was offered on the altar that had been built and they said to one another, who's done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said to Gideon, the son of Joash has done this thing. Okay? So he thinks that he gets away with it, but he doesn't. We're not told how, but somehow they piece together who's behind this whole thing. Now, once again, this gives us a snapshot into the life of Israel. Who is mad about the breaking down of this altar? Manassehites, the people of God. Okay, they're offended because this has hurt their religious sensibilities. 
The condition of Israel during these days, like I said, is, is Canaanization. Uh, They've been enculturated. They've lost their distinctiveness. And so they know that it's Gideon, the son of Joash, who's done this thing. Verse 30, the men of the town said to Joash, bring out your son so that he may die, for he's broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. Now pause, consider one more thing with me. Okay. If Gideon is going to go out with armies, where do the armies come from? These people, these men. Okay. God has basically said, I'm going to use you to deliver Israel, you know, as, what, as we'll see, as a military general, uh, but those self-same people want to put him to death for interfering with their religion. But his father, verse 31, Joash said to all who stood against him, will you contend for Baal or will you save him? He says, wait a minute, if Baal's so powerful, why do we need an angry mob? If he's just destroyed the altar of Baal, why is he still standing? Where is Baal? Right? The question Gideon asked was, where is the Lord? Effectively, his father says, where is Baal? In fact, he says, will you save your God? Is that what's needed? Do you need to fight for your God? Interestingly, the word there for save is the same one that's used over and over again for the deliverers that God raises up. God saves Israel. And he says, do you need to save Baal? Do you need to save your God? He says, whoever contends for him shall be put to death, or put to death this morning. So he turns it around. He says, wait a minute. If we're still standing and the altar is not, if Gideon has done this and survived, then we probably need to recognize this God for what it is, a false God. We need to get rid of this. And so he turns it around and he says, Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he's a god, let him contend for himself, because this altar has been broken down. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jerubabel. Okay, notice Baal is in his name, the one who contends with Baal. Okay, that is to say, let Baal contend against him, because he broke down his altar. And so that's episode one in Gideon's life, and then we move forward, verse 33. Now all the Midianites... And the Amalekites and the people of the east came together and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. Okay, now we're getting close to the showdown, to the climax, where, you know, once again, going back to the Magnificent Seven or Seven Samurai, where the enemy comes and they're going to do something different. The story's not going to repeat itself. But, verse 34, the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon and he sounded the trumpet, and the Bezerites were called to follow him. Remember, that's his clan within a clan. That's his family within the clan of Manasseh. But notice here, the Spirit empowers him for his new position. He clothes him, is what it says here in the text. Verse 35, he sent messengers throughout all of Manasseh, and they were too called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, to Zebulon, and to Naphtali, and they went up to meet them. Okay, and so basically these are the nearest tribes, and he sends out messengers to all of them to summon an army. And then verse 36, Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. That phrase is really important here. Gideon has not forgotten that God has made this promise. He's just not sure he believes it. Remember, this is Gideon, who the angel of the Lord has shown him his face, consumed his offering with fire, and disappeared in front of his eyes. 
This is Gideon who, in his timid obedience, has actually seen a reversal of his own community, and he goes, I don't know, I just don't know if I can trust you. And so he says, behold, verse 37, I'm laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. Here's the threshing floor. He knows where it is. He says, I'll lay the wool on the threshing floor. If there's dew on the fleece alone and it's dry on all the ground, I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And so he asks for another sign, and it's a pretty simple one. He says, when I wake up tomorrow, uh, let the fleece be wet and the threshing floor be dry. He's, he's basically challenging nature itself. It's similar to when we get to one of the kings of Israel who's not believing at the moment. And the prophet says, how will you know? He goes, oh, you know what? Here's a good idea. He says, the shadow that the sun is casting on these steps in the palace, would you like them to go forward 15 or back 15? And he goes, well, it's going to go forward. That's how things work. So make it go backwards. The idea is the same here. It's, I'm going to do something that only you can make happen. I'm going to set out this fleece and either no dew comes, everything's dry, or dew comes, everything's wet. So let's just make it different. Just show me, just prove to me. And I want you to notice that verse 38, and it was so. There's no complaint. There's no threat. God doesn't say, I really shouldn't have to do this. He does it. And then second, notice uh, when it was so, when he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. God meets him where he's at. He says, okay, I'll do it. Verse 39, then Gideon said to God, let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just one more. Please let me test just, just once more with the fleece. Please this time let it be dry on the fleece only and on all the ground let there be dew. And so he says, okay, don't be angry, but can we just do the opposite? Then I'll believe you. Just, just one more time. Okay. Can you put yourself in God's shoes? Have you ever made a promise to somebody? What if it was like this? What if they just said, okay, I, I, I believe you, but can you just demonstrate it to me in this way? And so you condescend to do it, and they go, okay, well, can you just... Where's the impatience? Where's the frustration? Now, to be clear here, every once in a while, Christians still use the language of laying out a fleece, right? And so effectively what they're doing is they say, well, I'm trying to figure out what the Lord wants me to do, so I'm just laying out a fleece before the Lord, and they're referencing this story. And all of us have to do something called discerning the Lord's will, right? All of us are called to figure out what it is that God wants with us, what it is that he's calling us to, how he'd like us to make a particular decision. In other words, like Gideon, we are followers of Jesus, and so we want to be issued our commands, okay? But we need to recognize here that Gideon is not a good example. Testing the Lord to demonstrate that he's really in something, the fact that God does this is just merciful. Gideon is a coward, and he's unbelieving. But God meets him where he's at. And so here's the thing that I would say to you. God is totally capable of answering whatever you're setting your fleece out. Whatever obstacle it is he puts in, you put in front of him so that you can know his will. He can do it. And sometimes he will. But that shouldn't be how we go about discerning God's will. 
You don't want to take the lowest common denominator and make that the best practice, right? If you want best practices for discerning the Lord's will, you should look elsewhere. You should look at Psalm 25, for example. You should look at the New Testament teachings that talk about the will of the Lord. But nonetheless, God does it. One of the things that's so striking about the story of Gideon is that God never interferes, calls him out, criticizes. Now, the author will, just by telling the story, because there are things worth criticizing Gideon about. But the point is, God condescends. Now, don't think of condescending, right? That's when we talk down to someone. Condescends is when somebody stoops down to your level so that it's ultimately clear, so it's understandable. And this is something God does all the time. He does to Abraham. Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 says, God, you have said that you will give me a son, but right now if I die, everything goes to my servant. How can it be? He says, you want to understand? And God condescends into this practice, one that Abraham already knows of severing the animals and walking between it. He says, let me make myself clear. God mercifully desires for Gideon to know that he knows that he knows, despite the fact that it's never enough. It reminds me, just very simply, by way of illustration, Spurgeon says that the New Testament records a single deathbed conversion so that none would despair, and it records only one so that none would presume. Right, talking about the thief on the cross who says, remember me, Lord. There he is hanging on a cross, literally dying, and he believes in Jesus, and Jesus says what? Truly, today you will be with me in paradise. The stories of Gideon should give you hope in your cowardice, but it shouldn't give you presumption. It shouldn't say, well, this is all I need to do. And so he does it in verse 40, and God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground there was dew. Now we would hope, with the close of the chapter here, and with the close of this part of the story, that that would be the end of Gideon's problems. But it's not. But the story moves on, chapter 7. Then Jerubel, that's Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod, and the camp of Midian was north of there, uh, them by the hill of Morah in the valley. Okay, and so they're basically gathering for war. Uh, it's suggested that this is about five miles from one camp to the next. Okay? That's, in my opinion, too close for comfort. Right? While you're sitting there, whatever happens next, you could encounter the enemy at any moment. It's there, verse 2, the Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into your hand. Have you ever read that and just thought about that statement? He says, the people with you are too many for me to do this. Gideon, you're just too strong. He explains next, he says, lest Israel boast over me saying, my own hand has saved me. Remember, what is God's great ambition in the days of the judges? That he would be their judge. That he would be their savior. In fact, in a few chapters, uh, we will get to uh, Jeroboam. And Jeroboam's name actually means God is judge. He's right at the center of the book. Okay? But here, he says, we need to do this so that it's clear 
that I'm doing this. And if you have too many soldiers with you, and remember, this is not new. This is not novel. This was the design for the army of Israel. No chariots, because I am going to fight for you. No standing army, because I am going to fight for you. Anyone who's afraid can go home. Anyone who's newly married has a new vineyard, you can go home. I do not need you, God says in Deuteronomy. And so he says the same thing to Gideon here. He says, we need to pare this back to make it clear. And so, verse 3, Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Now, two things. One, that's standard practice in the book of Deuteronomy. That's exactly what the priests were to say to the men any time the armies of Israel gathered. And two, it's pretty good advice. Okay. Imagine what it would be like to be on the front lines and then see the people around you begin to cut tail and run. What does that do to your own courage? What does that do to your own strength to suddenly feel like you're left alone on the field? Fear is contagious. Cowardice is contagious. It's good advice, okay? We probably shouldn't read that any differently here, but what's striking about it is what happens next, okay? So then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained, okay? That's a little bit bothersome. That's a little bit jarring. He's going through the normal practice, but how many cowards are there in the camp of Israel? The majority, two-thirds Two-thirds of Israel says, that's me, I'm gone. Okay? Now, we know that the Midianites are gathered in the valley and they're innumerable for comparison. And now he's down to 10,000 troops. But God's not finished. Verse 4, the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Take them down to the water and I will test them for you there. And anyone whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone who I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon. Now this test here, it's very difficult for us to piece together exactly what it looks like and exactly what it means. Okay? The language is relatively clear in English, uh, but in Hebrew, we're not exactly positive. On top of that, because of that, the significance between group A and group B kind of just passes over our head. And so I'll give you some suggestions that some commentators make, but... It's not necessarily clear, but it will be very clear to Gideon, okay? And so he says, take them down to the water, and then he says this. He brought them down to the water. The Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink, okay? Now, notice that when we read those both, they actually sound pretty similar. The one who kneels down to drink puts their face in the water, and the one who laps like a dog puts their face in the water. Here's the best suggestion out there. Actually, the ones who lap like a dog, it's not that they use their tongues, but they use their hands, because the word tongue isn't in the text. It says laps like a dog, not with their tongue, but, uh, um, but it just, it's just implied by the, interpret or by the translation here. Um, but the idea is maybe they're down at the water, but they're actually bringing the water to them with their hands like a dog does. Have you ever seen it in slow motion? It's fascinating watching a dog's tongue lick water, right? We know how to lick a popsicle. Have you ever tried to lick water? 
But the way dogs do it is it curls in like a spoon and then it throws it into their mouth. It's amazing. It's, it's, you should do it YouTube tonight. It's fascinating. So the idea here is maybe, maybe that some of the people in the camp, instead of putting their faces directly in the river, actually bring the water to them. Okay? The other suggestion out there is the exact opposite, that the ones who kneel down to the river use their hands. So it doesn't really matter which side you choose. But I want you to notice we can suggest the significance of this, right? Maybe the person who doesn't put their face in the water is a little bit more alert, right? A little bit more aware that they're in enemy territory. You know, they just have the peace of mind for war. But clearly the significance here is in numbers and not in practice, okay? If anything, if Gideon should be able to guess which ones are staying and which ones are going, it's going to be due to the arithmetic that he has a hunch, which is the right answer. Notice what it says here. Okay. Verse 6, the number of those who lapped putting their hands to their mouths were 300 men of how many? 10,000. Okay, 300 men, but all the rest of the people knelt down to drink the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand and let all the others go, every man to his home. Now remember this, these men were gathered from all over the place. Some of them go home out of fear, and then a large portion of them, another 7,000 plus, go home because they're not wanted. Okay. And all that's left is 300 men and an army across the valley. Okay. So, verse 8, the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men, and the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. That same night, the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you're afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Purah, your servant. And so what does he say? He says, Tonight's the night. Go and attack. Everything will be okay. And he says, If you still aren't feeling it, if you're still afraid, before you take the 300, just take one man, your servant Purah, and go down to the camp quietly. Okay. And so verse 11 you shall hear what they say, and afterwards your hand will be strengthened to go down against the camp. And so he's got two options. Fight, or I'll assuage your fears. And which does he choose? Assuage your fears. Why? Because he's still afraid. And so he goes down with Purah his servant to the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels were without number as the sand that's on the seashore in abundance, okay? More than the 10,000 Gideon started with, or the, the 30,000, 32,000 that Gideon started with. There's just a swarm of them. And so he's on the edge, and then verse 13, when Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade, and he said, behold, I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent, and struck it so that it fell and turned upside down so the tent lay flat. So can you imagine this? These are the night guards. Okay? In fact, um, if there are three night watches and not four, then we're talking 10 p.m. right now. That's where we're, we are. Okay? So it's just gotten dark in Israel, and these are the night watches who are left out. And they're talking, and one says, I had the strangest dream before I came out for my watch. And he said, I was dreaming, and this barley roll rolled into camp and hit a tent peg and the whole tent collapsed. 
And then notice what his friend says. His comrade, verse 14, answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon and the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. In the mouth of his enemy, the interpretation into the dream is given, and he basically says, Really? A barley roll knocked over a tent? We're in a mess. It's over. Clearly, this is Gideon. Now, one of the things that I love about this story is how did this dream get in this man's mind? God, he's just laid out this whole thing before him. He says, so you will understand, I'm going to give a guy a dream, and then I'm going to give the other guy the gift of interpreting dreams, and I'm going to put them in the place so that you can overhear the conversation. There's God's sovereignty written all over this. But that also means that the content of the dream is uniquely crafted. And what's Gideon's part? Just a rolling loaf of bread, right? That's the threat. That's the danger in this dream. It's terrifying to them. They say it's, we're done for. But the image that God chooses to use is just a non-threatening piece of bread. Unless you're gluten-free, there's no fear here, right? Clearly, God is communicating that he is in control, that Gideon need not be afraid, and that he really doesn't need Gideon at all. He has chosen to use Gideon. This is enough. This is sufficient for Gideon. Okay? And so, verse 15, as soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. This is the turnaround, right? This is brand new Gideon. This is, you know, the part of the movie where finally this downward spiral of failure turns around and somebody steps up to the plate, knocks it out of the park. He steps up as a general and he now has enough courage for his men as well. Remember, It's not only him who only has 300 co-soldiers. Each and every one is sitting with the same reality of what they're about to do. But he imparts to them the same courage that he's just been given. He says, God's going to do this. He becomes the charismatic leader that we associate with the book of Judges. And so we find also that he has a super weird plan. Now we're not told if this is God's strategy or Gideon's. We can tell that the strategy is already in place before the rolling bread dream. Because we already read before that that they brought their provision and their torches. The plan's already in place. It's the execution that's new to the story at this point. But whatever reason, notice what they do. He divided, uh, verse 16, the 300 men into three companies, I assume of 100 apiece, and he put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me then blow the trumpets on every side of the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. And so what does he say here? He says, three camps coming in on three sides around it. They've got their torches, but you can't see the flames because they're hidden in these pots. And then they've got a trumpet in their other hand, and they move and they gather around, and he says, when you see my torch, when you hear my pot break, when you hear my trumpet blow, you do the same, and then everybody shout for the Lord and for Gideon. Now, here's where the ambiguity of the story starts to break in. Is it good or bad that he says for the Lord and for Gideon? 
Should he just said, for the Lord? Right? It's actually, as we'll see, a pretty significant question. And the reason I say that is because so far, Gideon has been so absent from being the hero that it was all of God. And now he's going to be tremendously present. And it's hard to tell if this is just merely the victorious strength of the Lord or if it's something else. But either way, this is the plan. It's laid on the table. Just hold that in your mind, verse 19. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came into the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch. There's the 10 p.m. that I was talking about. When they just set the watch and they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hand the torches and in their right hand the trumpets to blow. And they cried out a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man, this is in the enemy's camp, stood in his place, sorry, every man stood in his place around the camp. They all stand their ground. They just stay right there. Their torches are shining. Their trumpets are blowing. They've just shouted when they blew the 300 trump, or sorry, I missed a line. Every man stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army, and the army fled as far as Bethsida towards Zerah. Okay, so at this point, are there any swords? Not in Gideon's hands. Trumpets and torches, that's the weapons here. How is it that the enemies slay? They slay themselves in the confusion. Okay. That's what's going on here. Now, one of the things that I want, to, want you to recognize here is effectively what we have is severely effective psychological warfare. We can probably read about what happens in the Midianite camp. This is what I would suggest is what's going on to them. Okay? They hear this overwhelming noise. They look around the camp and they hear, I assume, 300 trumpets. Okay? Now, jump forward to the Civil War. How many trumpets do you have in a platoon? One. One, right? And so the idea here is they suddenly feel like they're surrounded, they're outnumbered, when in actuality they aren't. I remember hearing this great story about the Seven-Year War in Israel, much later in Israel's history. And there was a particular tank driver, and he only had one tank. And all of his enemies, all in forces, all these tanks, and so he just started using the berms where he was and pulling up and shooting and then backing off and pulling up in another place. And he made it appear that there was a much bigger brigade of tanks and he held off this whole army of tanks all on his own because they didn't know any better. That seems to be what happens here, but then it escalates very quickly. As they see all the chaos, their greatest fear is that what comes after a shout like that? A charge, right? Instead, they stand in their place and so as they're encountering one another in the dark, they just assume it's the enemy. And so they begin to slaughter one another and then they just break out into a run. So the army fled as far as Bethshitta towards Zerubah, as far as the border of Abel-Meloah by Taba. Side note, I know those places don't mean anything to you. It's a pretty good distance, and that's the point. They ran a long time. In fact, we're going to see they run all the way out of Israel proper into, into the other side of the Jordan. They wade through the river in the middle of the night and keep running. Okay, It's a big deal. Then we say, the men, here it says, the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali, from Asher, from all Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. Okay, so joining the 300 here, 
is all of the armies, probably some of the ones that were sent home, and in mass they begin to chase the Midianites. Verse 24, Gideon sent messengers through all the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and capture the waters against them as far as Bethabara and also the Jordan. What is he saying here? He's saying effectively cut them off. Get out ahead of the armies, guard the river so that you're there to catch them as they try and get across it. Okay. Verse 25, while this is happening, they capture the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. Uh, the name there, Oreb and Zeb, that's raven and wolf. Those are war general names. Raven and wolf, carnivorous, you know, fighters, they capture these two generals, uh, these two princes. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb. Now that's not happenstance. That's not coincidence. They named these places after this, right? It's, it's reaching into the future and saying, this is why we call these places that. Then they pursued Midian, and they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. Okay, so now this campaign probably has moved on from this point from being a single night affair into days on the run. We'll see that in just a second. But in the midst of this, we're going to see some inter-Israeli conflict going on. Okay, so verse 1 of chapter 8. The men of Ephraim said to him, What is this you have done to us not to call us when you went to fight against Midian? Now if you go back and read chapter 7, he goes to Naphtali, he goes to his own Manassites, he doesn't go to Ephraim. And remember, Manasseh and Ephraim are relatively close tribes because they're brothers, sons of Joseph. They're the half-tribes, right? Together they make a whole tribe. And so the Ephraimites were just called a second ago, but they go, hey, wait a minute. Why are we just now hearing about this? Why didn't you call us earlier? And honestly, I have no idea why. We're not told, but they're relatively upset about it, okay? Now, side note, this seems to be the character of the Ephraimites. This will not be the first time that we find them bickering about things like this. Um, but nonetheless, they asked the question. They accused him fiercely, it says in verse 1. 2 says, he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleanings of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abizer? Notice how he smooths over this diplomatically. He says, guys, come on. He says, yeah, we started this whole thing, but you guys have been rocking the battlefield. And then he uses a harvest metaphor, and he says, just like your crops are abundant and fruitful, so that even the gleanings outweigh our harvest in its total. It's hyperbole here. But he says it's the same in this battle. You're the strong ones. Okay. And so he smooths this over, but it does point to something significant. What does Ephraim care about? It's not the victory. It might be the credit. But either way, this is not the right time to have this conversation while we're in a hot pursuit, you know. Uh, but, verse 3, he smooths things over. God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger against him subsided when he said this. Now, as I mentioned earlier, Gideon is a complex character. This seems diplomatic. It also seems humble, right? He doesn't flex his muscles and say, hey, listen, I am the Lord's anointed. I'm going to get all the credit because the credit is mine. You need to just rank and file, get behind me. He doesn't do that. But that's not the only thing he does in chapter 8. 
Verse 4, Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over. Okay, so out of the land of Canaan proper and into the land, you know, where the two and a half tribes were living. He and the 300 men who were with him, exhausted yet pursuing. Okay, they've been at this since the battle. They didn't bring any provisions. And you say, now wait a minute, I know I read the word provision tonight. In chapter 7, it does mention provision, but that's probably the pots and the trumpets. Okay, provisions for battle, not provisions for sustenance. And so now what started as a battle in the valley of Jezreel has gotten all the way across the river Jordan and they've been running in hot pursuit all night. They're hungry, they're exhausted, and they have nothing. So, what does it say here? It says, verse 5, He said to the men of Succoth, Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted, and I'm pursuing after Zeba and Zalmona, the kings of Midian. Okay, Succoth is an Israelite town in the other side of Israel, on the other side of the river. He comes to his own people and he says, I am defeating our enemies. Please participate by feeding my men. That's the request he makes. It's not unreasonable. Okay, but notice their answer. Verse 6, the officials of Succoth said, Mm, are the hands of Zeba and always already in your hand that we should give bread to your army? They go, wait a minute. Have you already conquered them? Because then we'd feed you. But if you haven't, what are they saying? They're saying, for us to support you right now when the enemies are still on the run, if this goes south, we could be on the hook for this. It's fear. It's fear. Now, is that the first time we've encountered a a fearful Israelite in this story? No, it's not. The way that God treats Gideon and the way that Gideon treats Succoth is not the same. And so, this is the answer they give. Verse 7, so Gideon said, Well then, when Lord has given Zaba." And Zalmona into my hands, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. Now, the comic book lover in me loves that sentence. The, the person in me who loves to read the old great stories of the knights of the round table loves that statement. But it is clearly a threat that Gideon, the deliverer of Israel, makes against his own people for a sin that he actually knows a good deal about because he suffers from it personally. What does he say? He says, I am going to conquer them, and when I come back, I'm going to teach you a lesson. And so what happens? Verse 8, from there he went up to Penuel, and he spoke to them in the same way, and the men of Penuel answered them as the men of Succoth had answered. And he said to the men of Penuel, when I come again in peace, when the war is over, when I come back, I will break down this tower, the tower of Penuel. He makes another threat. Verse 10, Now Zeba and Zalmoa were in Karkar with their army, about 15,000 men, and all who were left of all the army of the people of the east, for there had fallen 120,000 men who drew the sword. Now we start to get a figure for how big this army is. Remember, this battle starts with 300 versus at least 120,000. And that's just the ones who have been killed so far. That's not the total of them. Verse 11, Gideon went up, by the way of the tent dwellers of the east of Noba and 
Jogbeha, and attacked the army, for the army felt secure. So what does he do? He follows them, and then when he gets to the edge of the land of Israel, he finds the traitor routes, and he gets on them and chases them all the way home. Okay? This isn't just the roving army of the Midianites. This is the home base currently of the Midianites. And they were assuming that they got home scot-free. So it says they felt secure. They settled down. He'll never find us here is the idea. But Gideon chases them all the way there. Verse 12, Zeba and Zalmunna fled, and he pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian and Zeba and Zalmunna, and he threw all the army into a panic. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Heres, and he captured a young man of Succoth. Now, where is Succoth? That is an Israelite city that wouldn't give him bread, and he kidnaps one of them. You know, he's hanging out near the town. Once comes out of the town, he grabs him, and what does he do? He questioned him. And he wrote down for him the officials and elders of Succoth, 77 men. He says, give me the names of everyone who leads, every elder you have, every ruling elder of the town. I want the names of all of them. Verse 15, and he came to the men of Succoth and said, behold, Zeba and Zalmona, about whom you taunted me, saying, are the hands of Zeba and Zalmona already in your hand that we should give bread to your men who are exhausted? Now notice there, He doesn't criticize them for their lack of faith, but for their treatment of Gideon. He doesn't say, you disbelieved the Lord. He says, you taunted me. We're going to see more of a sense of vengeance in Gideon in just a second. He says, you did this. I know the names of every leader. Verse 16, he took the elders of the city. He took the thorns of the wilderness and briars and with them taught the men of Succoth a lesson. He publicly beat these 77 leaders with some sort of thorny branch. Okay. Now, some commentators suggest that this probably means he killed them. But even if it's just a thrashing, it is cruel, it is heavy-handed, it is against his own people. And side note, he is not called to be the judge of Israel in this sense. He's called to be their deliverer. This is clearly out of bounds. This is clearly above his pay grade. And it is clearly not how God treated Gideon or even the heart that God has for Israel. Verse 17, he broke down the tower of Penuel and he killed the men of the city. His own people. And there, it doesn't even say the elders, it says the men. He decimates the town of Penuel. And then it gets even stronger, verse 18. Then he said to Zeba and Zalmunna, where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? And they answered, as you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled a son of a king. And so somewhere in the battle, some people go missing. And so he interrogates these two rulers and he says, where are they? Where are our men? And he says, they were just as fierce as you were. And then notice, uh, he gets the message. He understands they're nowhere. They're dead. They fought valiantly, if you will, but they're dead. Verse 19, and he said, they were my brothers, the son of my mother. Now notice that. Not they were Israelites. When he says the son of my mother, he means his actual family, okay? It's personal. What he's about to do is personal. So he said, uh, 
They were the brothers of my son and of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. Now, even that's not a very good statement for him to make because God has given him one job. And if they had spared his family, that shouldn't have removed that one job. But once again, this has become personal for Gideon. So he said to Jether, his firstborn, rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword for he was afraid because he was still a young man. So he turns to his son and to humiliate these kings, he wants them to be killed, not by a warrior, but by a boy. And his boy's not up to the task. Okay. These things that we're starting to read, they do sound familiar. They sound like all of the rulers of the Middle East in the days of the judges. Gideon is becoming like the Midianites. He's becoming like the Philistines. Absolute power in the hand of whoever's the strongest, meted out against anyone who stands against him. It's not a good place to be. And now he humiliates his son by trying to draw him into the family business. And it's not over. And so he says to Jether to do this. He's afraid, verse 21, Zeba and Zalmuah say, rise yourself and fall upon us. For as the man is, so is his strength. In other words, if you want us dead, you do it. And Gideon arose and killed Zeba and Zalmuah, and he took the crescent ornaments that were on their necks and their camels. He takes the bounty, the loot, okay? Verse 22, the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us. Now, what happens later in Israel's history, after the days of the judges, when Samuel is ruling and when his sons are involved, Israel comes and they go, look, Sam, it's not that you're doing a bad job, but we don't love your sons and we'd much rather have a king like the other nations. Can we have a king? It becomes kind of a tense moment. Samuel's heartbroken about it because here he's been faithfully serving Israel his entire life and that's his reward. They basically say, that was fine and all, but we're done. We want something else. We, don't, we want something you don't have. We want something that you are not. But God speaks and he says, don't think that they're rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me. When they come to Gideon and say, rule over us, after we've read the things that we've read, what is it that impresses them about Gideon? Is, that he's, a, is it that he's a man of faith? Is that he trusts God and is clearly called by God? No, he's powerful like the other kings we're so afraid of. Effectively, they come and they say, we want a king like the other nations right here. This is the first time that request is made. Rule over us and your sons and your grandsons also, for you've saved us from the hand of Midian. What is the whole point of the delivering of Israel? So that they would live long enough to see that God desires to rule them. And they settle for Gideon. Now notice how Gideon responds, verse 23. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Now that sounds so orthodox. Gideon says, no, the Lord will do it. But there's a good reason to believe that this is just him being Middle Eastern. Deferring, not in a sense of humility, but in a sense of custom. And basically saying, oh, no, no, I couldn't. But as we're going to see in a second, there's really no difference between Gideon the not king and Gideon the king. 
And so he says this, and then he says, while you're at it, I do have one request. What is it? He says, let me make a request of you. Everyone give me the earrings from his spoil, for they had the golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. Ishmaelites is a broad term here that just means uh, traders, wandering travelers. He's speaking to the Midianites. You see the same thing in the story of Joseph. Uh, Verse 25, they answered, we'll willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in the earrings of his spoil. So what does he say? He says, if you really want to appreciate me, if you really want to thank me, I'll take a tax of your winnings. I'll take a little bit off the top of your loot. Just give me the earrings, okay? Now, the amount is somewhere between 50 and 70 pounds of gold that he's about to take home from this, okay? In that day, he is a made man, as we'll see. In fact, it allows him to have a harem full of wives and a boatload of sons because it just escalates him to tremendously wealthy, okay? But the thing I want you to notice here is how familiar this sounds to the story of Abraham after he goes to save Lot, right? He goes to Lot, and the king of Sodom comes out, and he says, Abraham, thank you so much. Let me repay you. And Sodom says, or Abraham says to the king of Sodom, I'm not even going to take a shoelace from you because God is the one who provides for me. It's just so different than what's going on here. If anything, if we wanted a real comparison between, uh, between Gibeon here and someone else in the Bible, it sounds like Balaam. Now that you mention it, right, it sounds like the servant of Elijah who says, you know what, my master's made a mistake. If you really want to pay us, that's totally fine. If anything here, we see a weakness in character, but he's not done yet. So verse 26, the rate, weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels. Like I said, depending on which shekel we're talking about here, somewhere between 50 and 70 pounds of gold. Besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, beside the collars that were around the necks of their camels. In other words, besides all the stuff he already took for himself. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Ophrah. And Israel whored after it there and became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So what does he do with it? One of the things he does is he makes this golden ephod. Now, that's not a word we use a lot, but you probably know it from the book of Leviticus. The high priest wore an ephod. Now, that one was beautiful, and it was bejeweled, but it was not solid gold. And he makes one here, and it becomes an instrument of worship, and not just worship. When it says he, that Israel hoard after it, an instrument of pagan worship. And so he uses his wealth and his position to lead Israel away from the Lord. Let's continue here. It was a snare to Gideon and to his family, so Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more, and the land had rest for 40 years in the days of Gideon. Jerubbabel, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons of his own offspring, for he had many wives. I don't know how the math works out on that. How many wives you have to have to have 70 sons. That doesn't even count the daughters, does it? But what does he do? He starts a harem. Now, that is generally a prerogative of royalty. It's generally something the rich and the powerful do. It's what Solomon does, right? He makes for himself a harem to demonstrate his wealth. Notice this. 
He had many wives, verse 31, and his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. Now, two things. One, we will find out that this woman he marries is not an Israelite. She's a foreigner. She just happens to live in Shechem, which they're not supposed to do. And two, do you know what the name Abimelech means? It means my dad is the king. That's what Gideon names Abimelech. My father's the king. Okay. 32, and Gideon the son of Joash died in a good old age, and he was buried in the tomb of Joash's father at Ophrah of the Abarazites. And so the story ends there, but it really doesn't, because who did we just meet? Abimelech? And we're going to see how that plays out in chapter 9, and it's going to feel a lot like a, the next story in a dynasty. Okay. Here's the thing. God takes a nobody and a coward and promises him to use him, fills him with his spirit, and where does he end? As a tyrant. That's the way this story reads. And part of the thing that, that it shows here in the book of Judges, to be really honest, it's not far removed from our own day and age. And I know we struggle with this because sometimes we see God do amazing things and then his workers become something else. And then we go, does that disqualify everything that came before? Or even worse, we go, those things can't be really true. Or even worse than that, we say, these things are okay because of that. Just look at the fruit. It's fine that this person... But we need to recognize the ability we have when God gives us place, when God gives us power, when God gives us provision to make, to make of ourselves what God never intended. And it doesn't downplay that Gideon was one of the deliverers of Israel. In fact, probably, the only reason Gideon ends up this way is because he's the one that God raised up. What I mean is, Pick any Israelite you want. Would the story have been different? We've got to watch out for that mentality that says, I would never allow myself to be corrupted like that. It's much better to pray like the psalmist does and say, or I think it's in Proverbs, God, give me enough so that I never curse you in hunger, but don't give me so much that I forsake you in my wealth. Gideon would have never seen himself as the tyrant of Israel. But given the opportunity, that's what he becomes. That's where Israel is at. That's what's going on in the days of the judges. And so let's finish here. Verse 33. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Balbareth their god. Now, did you see that word hoard? It's not been used in the book of Judges very much at this point. But it was just used a minute ago. And who was behind the whoring? Gideon and his ephod. Is it really surprising that Israel ends up in the same place they started when Gideon was their judge? No. As the leader goes, so goes the people. And so no progress is made. And so they made Baal Bareth their God. That's Baal of the covenant. Verse 34, And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubal, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. Now, once again, the statement there is a positive one. Gideon died in a ripe old age. And here it says, Israel forgot even about Gideon and didn't give him the return for all the good that he'd done in Israel. But this is not a black and white story. 
It's very gray. It's very mixed. And so both can be true. Let's go ahead and stop there for the night. Let's pray. Father, I often reflect on what it would be like to be one of your people in the days of the judges. Sometimes it seems so foreign, it seems so distant. It's so easy to remove ourselves and say, God, thank you that we're not like Israel. But I'm not always convinced that's the clear truth. And I think if we look at the church as a whole in America, I think we find a lot of things written in the book of Judges that we wish weren't true. I think, again, as we have every time we've opened our books and read about Israel, I think, again, we look in a mirror and we find ourselves. And we pray, Lord, that you would be merciful on us and spare us from the things that could destroy us. But even more so, Lord, we pray that you would be merciful on us and spare us from ourselves. Help us to long for you to save us. Help us to never settle for the fringe benefits of your call. Just work. Work in our hearts, work in our church, work in our city, work in our nation, Lord. And don't just deliver us from our enemies. But bring revival, Lord. Bring us back to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a good night.